Tanse. That's hello in Cree. Welcome to Catching Frogs. I'm Wendy Stewart. Thanks for joining me today. I'm grateful to the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of this project on my journey to reconnect with my Cree and Métis roots and to revisit the history of Canada through the lens of Indigenous women and their significant contribution. But none of this would be possible had it not been for the tireless commitment of Donna Sutherland, my second cousin, and the 10 years of her dedicated research. We begin. We can't examine the fur trade era without looking closely at the insurgence of smallpox and how it devastated Indigenous people. The University of Manitoba Press in 2002 published A Very Remarkable Sickness, written by Paul Hackett, a helpful read in understanding the spread of smallpox in North America. A great many of the diseases that afflicted the Europeans were absent from the Americas prior to the arrival of Columbus, but then Indigenous peoples suffered epidemic after epidemic. Quote, Within two decades of Columbus's arrival on the islands of Hispaniola, crowd diseases began to appear in continental North America. End quote. Smallpox was the most destructive of the diseases spread by Europeans, having, quote, killed untold number of Aboriginal people in the Americas, end quote. With an infectious period of as long as 21 days, the opportunity for spread was likely. True crowd infections can only survive in densely populated urban communities, as seen in Europe, where there is a continuous supply of susceptibles, in other words, those who haven't yet been infected and developed an immunity. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, smallpox crossed the Atlantic with French settlers early in the 17th century. The first case reported was in 1616 in a fur trading post near Tadoussac in Quebec, where the Saguenay and St. Lawrence rivers merge at the site of the first trading post established in 1599. From there, the wretched disease spread east to the Maritimes, west to the Great Lakes, and north to James Bay regions. Jesuit priests are to blame for helping diseases to spread, with their insistence on baptizing those sick with disease. Hackett wrote of a Jesuit missionary in 1616 saying, quote, The Mi'kmaq are astonished and often complain that since the French mingle with and carry on trade with them, they are dying fast, end quote. We know that smallpox reached Sault Ste. Marie in 1669. With the establishment of Hudson's Bay Company posts, the historical patterns of movement among Indigenous people were altered, and contact with Eastern settlements began. When the Royal Charter was established in 1670, it took only five years for settled forts to appear at the mouths of all major rivers draining into Hudson Bay. When British fur traders first appeared on the lands to the south and west of Hudson Bay during the late 17th century, writes Hackett, they encountered a country that, in one way at least, was a revelation. The people whom traders met suffered from very few diseases, and their lives on the whole seemed vigorous and healthy compared to those of Europeans. 
For early traders, this was as close to a disease-free paradise as they could imagine, end quote. Ships traveling to Hudson Bay were thought to be responsible for the spread of smallpox and certainly had the potential of bringing disease into the area. But this was not the case, and the spread wasn't until much later after the arrival of the Hudson's Bay Company posts. Hackett explained, quote, The longer the voyage, the less likely that the disease will be passed on at the destination, since at some point the ailment will have run its course among all susceptibles on board, end quote. Many Indigenous people traveled to Quebec settlements from the east and from the Great Lakes, picking up the sickness and taking it home with them. Jesuit priests called smallpox the pest of the savages, taking no responsibility considering the consequences of the priests habitually baptizing the sick and dying, thereby increasing the mortality rate. In 1674, company servants witnessed the aftermath of a lethal epidemic among some of the lowland Cree of James Bay, wrote Hackett. The presence of the HBC had an immediate impact on the French fur trade, spurring the French to further their exploration and thereby increasing their interaction with Indigenous peoples in the interior. The French and the Northwest Company tried to compete with the Hudson's Bay Company and moved from French settlements into the north, bringing with them the disease. Further, some Indigenous people changed their patterns of movement to provide food for the HBC posts. The French and English were almost constantly battling each other. York Fort was captured by French sea force in 1694, lost in 1696, and regained in 1697, thereafter remaining under French control until 1714, explained Hackett. The Treaty of Utrecht was signed in 1713 by France and Great Britain, returning York to the English in 1714. From this date forward, detailed records were kept. The far north held smallpox back for quite some time. In the north, tribes and family sizes were small and spread over vast areas. Even during peak hunting times, people gathered in much smaller groups than their southern counterparts. They had buffer regions to create a system of peace, and this too helped prevent the spread of smallpox for a time. The Fort Prince of Wales, in its isolation, placed restrictions on trading, not allowing visitors to cross the Churchill River, while the disease claimed tens of thousands of lives to the south. Hudson's Bay Company journals refer to famine causing death among Indigenous people, but in truth, starvation was the secondary impact on the population. They could not hunt while in their sick and weakened state, and starvation was often the result. Smallpox was present in the York factory area in 1737-1738, but did not spread very far, while being a routine occurrence at York factory from 1751 to 1759. Travel increased with the influx of Canadian fur traders in 1769 to 1770, with 17 Canadian houses east of Lake Winnipeg and north of Lake Superior. In reviewing post-journals, 
In September 1769, after the arrival of the fall ship at York, there was an outbreak of diarrhea among the men. The next September saw the spread of moderately severe colds after the arrival of the sloop from Europe. In 1771, the seahorse arrived near York Factory after 59 days at sea, carrying flu and cold pathogens. From 1739 to 1780, there was a significant increase in disease over the previous 70 years. The height of the smallpox epidemic of 1779 to 1783 killed a half to three-quarters of Ojibwe peoples living west of Grand Portage. 75% of the total population of Woodland Cree died. These deaths caused relocations that reshaped the human landscape. In August of 1779, a smallpox outbreak in Mexico City killed an estimated 40,000 people. The disease moved on to the Canadian Plains, not through trade, but through warfare. Victor Litwin wrote in his book, original people of the great swampy land, that smallpox obliterated at least half the population of the swampy Cree, and it took until the 1820s to recover their numbers. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, quote, in 1763, the British, under Geoffrey Amherst, used blankets exposed to smallpox as germ warfare in attempt to subdue First Nations resistance led by Pontiac. In 1775, during the American Revolution, American troops besieging Quebec City were stricken with smallpox. End quote. There are some who say Hudson Bay blankets used as currency in the fur trade between HBC servants and Indigenous people were exposed to smallpox. But Hackett, like many other historical researchers, believed this not to be so, citing a complete lack of evidence and the fact that the HBC relied on the support and hunting skills of Indigenous people for the very nature of their business relationship. Further, William Thomason, factor at Cumberland House, wrote in his post-journal of those inflicted with smallpox and how he cared for them, as did Matthew Cocking, chief factor at York. The disease reached Cumberland House December 11, 1781. William Thomason travelled the Hayes River to York Factory in June of 1782 and, quote, most of the Aboriginal people he encountered were either sick or dead from smallpox. The National Library of Medicine includes transcripts from the Cumberland House Post Journal in which William Thomason describes the smallpox and the suffering the disease bestowed on the Indians. William Thomason took many of the ailing in and cared for them, though few survived. The Post Journal is filed with the Hudson's Bay Company archives as B.49-A-11. I'll read from that journal now. December 17, 1781. I received the disagreeable news of that devouring disorder, the smallpox, raging amongst the natives and is carrying all off before it. Whenever it comes, God knows what will be the end. End quote. Thomason received a letter from William Walker of Hudson House, quote, 
I am sorry I should have such disagreeable news to send you, but the smallpox is raging all round us with great violence, sparing very few that take it. We have received the news of about nine-tenths of Indians within here all dead, the tents left standing, their bodies left inside, unburied." Thomason wrote of trying to protect the Indigenous people when strangers arrived, quote, smoking everything belonging to them with the flower of sulfur to prevent any effect from them to the natives, end quote. On December 24, 1781, he wrote, Indeed, it is spreading over the whole country, which will be a shocking affair as ever was known. On December 27th, he wrote, This morning we could observe the smallpox coming out very thick on the sick lad's head and thighs. This was a young boy they had taken in to care for. On December 30th, he wrote, The Indian still continues very bad. He has a great stoppage in his throat. Indeed, I have no medicine to give him that is fit for that disorder. January 1st, 1782, he wrote, The Indian lad still very ill. He turned blind last night. God knows whether his sight will return should he recover. January 2nd, he wrote, Four Indians arrived to trade. I would not let them come into the house for fear of them becoming ill, but had a tent pitched for them some distance off. January 4th, one man attending the sick Indians. January 5th, one man making a coffin and one man digging a grave for the Indian lad. He died last night at 10 o'clock and was for 24 hours delirious. January 6th, he wrote, Two Indian men and two women arrived with the same melancholy news as before. They say there was five-tenths of them, but is now reduced to three, and several of them bad. Sent men to check on the Indian family. They returned the evening of January 14th. Indian and his family well, in health, but in great want of provisions, not having killed anything since we heard from him last. January 15th, he wrote, Distressed woman and her child came, all that are alive out of one tent. The news she brings is still more alarming of that cruel disorder, the smallpox raging amongst them with its greatest fury. They die within the third or fourth night. Those that survive after that time are left to be devoured at night by the wild beasts. January 21st, sent a man to assist a sick Indian and bring him to the house. Nineteen starved Indians arrived, their condition too shocking to describe. They have left several on the way, not able to walk. One child died on the road which they have brought to be buried. January 22nd, buried the child and fed the starved Indians. The log goes on and on about the devastation, and it is so very difficult to read. But I rest assured that Thomason was doing everything he could to protect those that he could. Thomason's records were used by researchers to understand how the disease attacked those first people. I think it prudent to say a bit more about Thomason, who worked for the HBC from 1760 until 1810. He was born in South Ronaldsay, one of the Orkney Islands, in 1739, and died there 90 years later. 
He came from a humble origin and received no formal education. He signed with the HBC in 1760 at the age of 20 as a labourer, stationed for seven years at York Factory. In 1767, Thomas was sent inland to winter with the Indians and to establish a relationship with them. The London Committee recognized his relationship with the natives and, quote, being greatly beloved by them, end quote. Thomason's account of the smallpox epidemic of 1781 to 1782 is the most detailed record that exists from that time and how it affected the native population. Thomason traveled to York in the fall of 1782 to pick up supplies for the coming winter only to find the fort destroyed and abandoned. He was forced to return inland with no confidence of survival, not knowing when or if the HBC might return to York to rebuild. He received many promotions, but spent most of his working life in isolation and was very withdrawn, criticized by the men for his aloofness. He returned to England to stay in 1810. Since 1793, he had been providing funds to support a school and other charities in his home area. Upon his death, most of his considerably vast estate provided for the establishment of a free school for the poor of the Orkney Island, upon which he was born. What I found interesting about Thomason in reading his post-journals is the detail of the condition of the Indigenous people he came to know and his concern for them. In one such journal, filed in the archives as B.239-A-64, he often wrote of watching the Indians, quote, feasting, drumming, and dancing. He wrote of men hunting while women gathered berries and nuts. He wrote again of the men feasting, drumming, and dancing. He wrote that several times, while the women were dressing skins for tents. The entries were detailed and rich, unlike any other I read, and I had the sense of what this community was like. Bungee Indians, or Northern Ojibwe, arrived at York Factory on June 10, 1782, the first infected Aboriginal to reach the fort. But the Home Guard Cree were not infected due to the actions of Matthew Cocking, then chief factor of the fort. He took active precautions to prevent the spread of the disease, hand-washing, isolation, warning other company posts to do the same. He sent his men to trade at a nearby creek rather than having the Cree coming to the fort. He warned Severn House of the disease and the precautions they should take, and he did not send anyone to Fort Prince of Wales. When the French attacked Fort Prince of Wales and York Factory in 1782, the Cree paid a great price when abandoned late in the season without shelter or food, exposing them to smallpox as they traveled to York Factory in hopes of finding shelter and food there. Humphrey Martin took over York Factory to rebuild in 1783 and wrote of the, quote, melancholy account of the havoc death hath made in the North River Indians, most of whom are cut off as also the Churchill Home Guard, so that this country, for some hundreds of miles, may too truly be said to be depopulated, end quote. 
smallpox reached the Hudson Bay Lowlands near Albany in 1784. After 1783, I found little mention of smallpox in the H.B. Post journals I read, but famine was still mentioned. James Isham, in his observation on Hudson's Bay, criticized the natives for their lack of preparedness for winter provisions, failing to understand their way of life had been to move and follow their food supply, and storing any quantity of food was not feasible for them. As they were exposed to smallpox, and illness was severe and often fatal, their ability to move in search of food and to even hunt was seriously limited, often leading to them dying of starvation before smallpox was able to cause their death. This was another example of how a noted historian didn't get it right of what was happening in front of him, nor did he convey this for future generations to understand. It was important to me to share the exact wording of what those keeping HBC Post journals were witnessing as smallpox raged. Nahue was 10 during the height of the smallpox epidemic. She was safe at Fort Prince of Wales, but that wouldn't last. Next time we'll return to our study of William Sinclair and his life. Hi hi, which means thank you in Cree. Hi hi for listening. Bye for now.